Hi, this is Steve Roost, and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. Each week, we give you the best news, views, and interviews from the health technology world. From CEOs and founders to entrepreneurs and clinicians, the companies and people that are shaping the future face of healthcare. All on the world's number one talk health radio. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio, the world's <laughs> number one talk health radio. Each week, we bring you the best news, views, and interviews with the people who are shaping the healthcare landscape in the UK and beyond. As a founder and a CEO of a health tech company myself, I am passionate about finding and talking to the people who are genuinely changing the world. Um, it's great to be back after a little summer break, after our holly bobs. Um, and oh my goodness, there's been a huge amount of stuff that's happened since we since we stepped away from some of doing the doing the last live show. Um, today's show is brought to you in partnership with PocDoc. Um, PocDoc is on a mission to make blood testing easier by letting anyone test themselves using the PocDoc app. Our first test is a full five marker lipid panel, um, which you can do via smartphone and gives a full quantitative result and health assessment all in six minutes, all in the PocDoc app. So we, um, in, just in interest of full disclosure, PocDoc is the company that I run. Um, and we're currently rolling out through pharmacies and corporate wellness. So if anyone's listening and is interested in learning more about PocDoc, whether you want to test people in the pharmacies or at work, uh, head to my PocDoc.co.uk or find me on the socials. It's at Steve Roost on Instagram um, and Steve Roost on LinkedIn. So um, finally, the, before starting the show, the last bit of admin that we have to do is to say thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, whether you're listening live on UK Health Radio, we're getting about between 50 and 60,000 people listening live for every show, which is incredible. So thank you very much for being here. Um, and thank you if you're listening on demand on Spotify or any of the other podcast um, platforms on Spotify. We currently have a five-star rating. So thank you for that. Or on YouTube. So all of the videos from all of our shows are on YouTube and we have over a thousand subscribers and thousands and thousands of watch hours. So again, thank you very much. Obviously, much appreciated. Can't just be my mum who's watching. So there must be other people out there who enjoy what we're doing. So thank you very much for, for supporting the show. So on to the day. What a day today. So the day that Boris leaves and Liz Trust starts, um, she's got the toughest in tray for an incoming prime minister since Churchill took over from Neville Chamberlain. There's a lot that she's got to figure out. And it's a tough call as to what should be at the top. But some may say that the NHS staffing crisis and the NHS backlog are the number one, number two things that Liz has to do. And I hope that Liz, Kia, Wes, and whoever becomes the, the health secretary, whoever gets the portfolio, are listening to this show, because today our guests may very well have the solution, or a solution. There might be lots of solutions. It's a complicated problem. But he may well have one or two. So today's guest is Ahmed Sharabani, CEO and founder of Locum's Nest, um, which is the leading workplace technology company for the NHS. Now, workforce technology might not be something that everyone's completely familiar with, but Ahmed has built a company that's dedicated to helping the NHS basically fill all of the record vacancies, 130,000 vacancies, uh, which is a record high that was announced last week, um, and get through the backlog and save money. So Locum's Nest recently announced that they're closing in on saving the NHS over a billion pounds. 
um, actual cash saving to the to the NHS of a billion pounds, which is a is a big big number. So, Ahmed, welcome to the show. How are you? Yeah, no, thank you very much, Steve. Thanks for having me. Very well, thank you. Yeah, big big day for the UK, busy day for the UK. But uh, I guess we'll try and compartmentalise the NHS and into the workforce. Yeah. For, but uh, it's good to be back. Yeah, we can break it up a little bit. <laughs> so uh, we can break it up a bit. Um, so, how was your summer? Busy, I, I expect. Yeah, no, Steve. Uh, good, good summer. Thank you. Uh, managed to take some time off, but um, for us, it, it was quite a busy time. We we had a funding round that closed just before summer, so as I'm sure you can imagine, a company in a real nice, fun growth phase. So lots of new people joining the company, lots of great people. Uh, so it was actually around the UK for for most of it, getting them on board, getting them part of the team, getting the culture right, and um, sharing our vision really, so everyone gets up to speed as quickly as possible. But good, good. How was yours? Yeah, busy. It was good. You know, a little bit of family time, a lot of work. You know, there's a lot happening at Pop Doc Towers as well as trying to plan for the next series of, of the Health Deck Hour. Um, you know, the next kind of upcoming show cycle that we have, which is super exciting, which kicks off the day with you. Um, so before we dive into the issues of the day and try and, like you say, compartmentalize them, um, let's just take a step back for everyone listening and talk a little bit about how you came up with the idea for Locum's Nest. What was the pain point? What was the problem that you identified? Because you were working as a doctor at the time. What was the sort of the, the core pain point you saw and that prompted you then to start the company? And give us basically the origin story so that everyone listening can kind of get on the same page about, about Locum's Nest. Yeah, no, of course you would, with, with pleasure. And just for the record, still practicing. So I, I do the odd weekend here oh. and there on the research rewards. Um, but medicine okay. has changed a lot uh, over the last five, six years since we founded Locum's Nest. It's, it's, it's been fascinating to be back on the ward since the pandemic struck. But I'd, yeah, it'd be cool to talk about that because there's there's a lot to talk about with the shortages in the workforce and folk like me who've come back into practice. But uh, so Locum's Nest, I mean, it's, uh, it's a story that started in the summer of 2015, really, um, where I, so my story is very, very simple. Um, graduated from Sheffield University. That's where I went to med school, moved down to London, which is where I met Nick, the other co-founder. Uh, we worked as doctors together at a trust in, an NHS trust in, in South London. And it was there where we were exposed firsthand, almost from day one, which was the, the real sad part where there was clear that there were gaps in the rotors and there simply weren't enough doctors to, to fill all the shifts that the hospital needed filling. So a, a typical Friday for us would be turn up to the wards, do a ward round, uh, do your jobs as doctors. And then at some point in the day, you'd be contacted by the, the rotor manager and he or she would come down and say, you know, Ahmed, Nick, John, Jane, uh, please, can you pick up the shift this Sunday? Um, we'd often say no because we were rotated to work the following Monday or you know, we had other plans. We were fresh out of med school, so we weren't too brave and bold yeah. to want to do extra work. Um, and so if if the rotor team couldn't find somebody on the ward to fill up the shift just by having conversations with people, they would resort to a, a barrage of phone calls, emails, texts, bleeps, asking the friendliest consultant of the day to come down to the wards and ask the juniors to pick up an extra shift over the weekend. Um, so quite a time-consuming process. And, you know, sometimes it didn't feel very uh, fair having so, your arms twisted. Yeah, I can imagine. And, like, 
because obviously doctors, there are lots of different, this is going to sound so stupid. There are lots of different doctors' specialties and things like that. <laughs> was was your experience completely common across everything? That So that, that, that little vignette was happening every day, everywhere, across the board, in effect, or not really? Uh, absolutely. Uh, there are shortages in the NHS at every grade, every specialty, every trust in the country. So this isn't unique. I mean, the we were working on a general surgery firm at the time, which is one of the larger departments where you'd think it would be the best staffed, but this was a global global issue across the and UK. This was, and this was back in 2015. So has there kind of like, has this, again, I don't want to go, I don't know how far to go back, but has the health service sort of always been understaffed versus optimal staffing levels? Or has there been a point where it was okay and then, from that point, it's gotten worse because obviously, you know, for a really quite a long time now, people have talked about these shortages. So I just was interested, you know, what your view would be on that. Of course. And, and look, Steve, I'm, I'm not a politician, um, so I, I can only really talk with any, <laughs> any confidence from personal experience and yeah. the knowledge that I know. So my timeline of staffing really starts 2014, which is when I started practicing. Um, and I have to say there, over that time period, it's, it's sort of yo-yoed actually. So from 2014 to 15, there were real issues and a lot of doctors uh, left the NHS full-time to go to Australasia to find other portfolio careers. It was at the time when Jeremy Hunt was in power and there were all the junior doctor strikes, which made the news and doctors were out in force on the picket we're gonna, lines. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna come back to that because I want to go into Sure. Yeah, that, yeah, no, of course. Um, um, for sure. Um, okay, sorry, carry on. No, so I was just so I mean, it, it, the workforce pressures increased dramatically in that year and, and we'll come on to the whys and the, the whats later. Um and it kind of gradually got worse and worse and worse. And then COVID hit. And then you had a lot of doctors who came back into the system to help out. There was a big kind of wartime effect where people volunteered and they wanted to really support where they could. So actually, the, the shortages at the peak of the pandemic were probably at their best, i.e. there were the fewest gaps in the NHS then. But now we have yo-yoed all the way the wrong way, where the sex of supply isn't being used and actually the backlog of cases is an all-time high. International recruitment is very tricky because this is a global shortage of workers, not just within the UK. Um, so we are probably yeah. at the worst we've been at so far. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what the that's what the figures would suggest. And, and, and you know, what you said there about the with the COVID crisis, the numbers looking better, that was probably a bit of a false economy, right? In the sense it was... It looked better because you had or they did a credit to them an amazing job to get recently retired or otherwise non-practicing professionals back into the NHS. Um, but you know that I, well, we, I know that we talked about this before when we were planning the show. That's not necessarily continued to keep those people in the workforce. No, no, it hasn't, and I, I suspect we'll we'll get on to that. But I guess just to segue to back, back to, to Locum's Nest. Yeah, let's go back. Let's go back to Locum's Nest. So, no, I mean, it's so that that was the problem. So very, very opaque, convoluted way of finding somebody to pick up an empty space on hospital rotor on a ward. Um, oh, and can I, sorry, can I just please, ask one yeah, question yeah. about that? So, and this is more just for everyone listening, because we always try and bring it back to the patient and why this matters to the people listening, just at a very basic level. 
if a, if, a, if a shift shortage of rotor slot doesn't get filled, what are the downstream impacts on patients? Just yeah. like fundamentally. Yeah, I mean, without trying to scaremonger everyone, what what typically happens is <laughs> um, you will have a as a junior doctor, you'll typically cover one to a few wards um, in hours and out of hours. If there are worker shortages and there's a gap on a ward, you will need to cross cover. So you cover multiple wards. And what that typically means as a doctor is you'll do the the, the critical jobs. Um, okay. So unfortunately, what it can sometimes lead to inadvertently are things like delays and discharges where some admin tasks aren't performed as quickly as they could have done. Because of course, if you're short staffed, you deal with the sickest and the people who need you the most uh, before going down to okay. the admin side. There are economical that, arguments why that's not the right thing to do, but of course, as a doctor, you're obliged, got an oath to treat well, the sick. And, well, and also your 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 personal risk in 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 a, in a I don't like well, not necessarily a, legal, a liability way, but but your sort of like you say, your obligation would be to treat the sickest people first because they're the most at risk of getting sicker or having serious complications or potential fatalities and. Unfortunately, if you've got like limited time resource, you have to make a tough decision. Correct. Absolutely. So, so that's typically what happens is um, some tasks which are deemed non-urgent or routine, one could say, are typically pushed to the following day or the following shift when the wards are better staffed. Because um, it's typically weekends and out of hours. In theory, where... better staffed, right? In, in, in theory. theory, they're better staffed. But does this... But does this kind of can this sometimes cascade slightly? Or well, not? it doesn't uh, like the way the way it cascades is is much more related to clinical pathways. So you have delays in discharge planning on on the wards, which will lead to delays in the number of beds in intermediary wards, like the acute medical units, which will right. then lead to delays in the emergency departments, which is when you start hearing the stories of patients on trolleys, you know, queuing right. outside the hospital and treated in corridors, which is inappropriate. Doctors hate it. Nursing staff hate it, patients hate it. It's not ideal, but there sometimes simply aren't enough beds. And the problem all starts with sometimes just, you know, one shift not being filled, as, as sad as that is. Right. And so you saw this problem and these rotor managers presumably were like the busiest, some of the busiest people in the hospital calling up and texting and whatever, just running around with their heads on fire every day trying to fill shifts. But like that's still quite a long way away from starting a company. So, you know, what was that like transition like? Yeah, no. Because you were working as a doctor, right? Yeah. I mean, you were you were like a full-time doctor. Yes, yeah. So Nick and I were in our foundation years of training. So the first first and second years of full-time doctoring. Uh, but no, bless the the rota the rota leads. I'm still very, very good friends. A lot of them it it was tough. Um I, very, very difficult job they're doing and crucial. But um to answer your question about, you know, problem to solution. And please excuse this crude and blunt analogy, but it was at the time when Uber was up and coming, Tinder was up and coming. And, you know, we just thought these classic disintermediation plays for the dating industry, the taxi industry, um, if you could find somebody to go on a date with on an app or, you know, book a cab on an app, why can't one of the most highly regulated professions in the country find work through an app? Um, and it, to be frank, it just yeah. it eliminated the phone calls, the emails, the texts, the bleeps, the scatterfire comms that bombard you. Um, it goes into a simple app that it only pings you when you it knows you are free and 
you only engage with it when you want to. So that's the kind of the theory behind it. Cool. Um, and how was it initially? And, and I, I mean, how was it trying to start a business and being a full-time doctor, which is one of the toughest professions, particularly when you're a junior doctor, you know, the, the, the sort of apocryphal, you know, in an apocryphal sense, junior doctors are sort of, you know, widely seen as working extremely long hours, you know, in very tough conditions. I mean, obviously everyone is in a difficult condition in the health service, but, you know, I don't know whether it's slightly true or slightly exaggerated, but with junior doctors particularly are sort of discussed as a somewhat, it was a pretty stressful job anyway. Yeah, no, it's very stressful, but but very rewarding. Um, and, and back in 2015-16, it was prior to a lot of the new road to regulation. So we were working, you know, 24-hour shifts on the wards, have a day off, work the following 24 hours, a few hours sleep. And I, I remember to this day the number of springs the hospital beds had for the doctors, just where they, you know, it was, it was tough. Wow. But um, I, I was very fortunate in, in the sense that I had a very, very supportive medical director and human resources director where I had some admin time, even as a junior, and some e-learning time where I could dedicate to this. And they were incredibly helpful and supportive. And, you know, with, with tech, you do what you can. Uh, you build your MV, your minimum viable product, but you need somebody, a, a supportive partner organization to help you get up and running. And for us, that was the trust I was working at in Guildford. And it, it was, yeah, it was a lot of, lot of out-of-hour meetings and sessions with Nick and so on. Do you think like, because obviously being in health tech and things like that, you know, you can't really, the, the NHS is sort of like the giant elephant in the room, you know, in the UK anyway. And it's sort of, are you working with it? Are you not working with it? How are you working with it? And those type of things. And do you feel like weirdly being a doctor, first of all, you were able to see the problem and live the problem and diagnose the problem far more quicker with greater acuity. And then also, like you say, get that MVP into uh, you know, an NHS entity, an NHS body more more quickly versus potentially someone who wasn't necessarily inside the system trying to solve that from outside. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, of course, and, and and maintaining my clinical practices helped us adapt the technology to see how recent time clinical practices changed. But no, I mean, it, it massively, massively helpful. Right. You need to know the system inside out and really be part of it. Otherwise, it feels a bit the tech sometimes feels a bit sterile so you know excuse the pun there but you need to have an app well, created it, for it, users. It, it, yeah yeah and also you need to have the trust of the people in order to allow you to then roll out what will be relative the beginning you know fairly basic mvp versions but they trust you they trust your clinical background they trust your experience you have those relationships and that that, that allows you to do that whereas you know if it was tech company xyz who started to go around and pitch, you know, hospital trusts on this new system, I can imagine that that would have been a little bit harder. Yes, no, absolutely. And doctors talk, you know, there are one in two doctors in the country are on Locum's Nest now right. and they they pass on good ideas to one another. Is that right, 50%? Yeah, just just over. Um, You've got 50% of the doctors. They're, yeah, yeah, you know, and it's, it's growing and doctors talk and it's a really nice community of, of clinicians and, yeah, word spreads when it helps. And was it like, how, just give, you know, step by step, just because I'm, I'm interested and I'm sure people are interested. Literally, how does it work? Like, you know, you don't have to be like on screen one, it says this, but just like, you know, from a doctor's perspective and from a rotor person, rotor manager's perspective, how does it work? 
Yeah, so I guess it's it's two elements. So the road to manager side of things, they they've got their platform where they have a very very easy way to to publish their vacancies that they have on their rotors. It takes seconds can, as opposed to minutes or hours with the old school way of doing things. With the doctors, every doctor has a unique profile. We link in with the General Medical Council, um, which is the main kind of professional body in the UK. And I'm talking just doctors here, but all NHS workers are now on locums, nests, nurses, AHPs, etc. Um, but if we just use doctors as the example, they download the app, uh, it pings to the GMC. Um, they have a profile that's auto-populated to some degree, and they add the nice bits to it. Um, and then the app will detect their specialties, their grades, and will show them shifts that match exactly what they want. It'll link into their calendars, their rosters, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just a very, very easy way for a doctor to find work where they want, when they want. Um, and they're helping the NHS because we're not a locum agency. We're connecting NHS doctor to NHS shift. Right. Oh, that's interesting. So you're you're keeping everything within the system. Correct. Yes, we are not a locum agency. Um, a lot of the savings that we've alluded, which is you know approaching the one billion mark now in pounds sterling, um, are shifting workers back into the system, so back into the NHS. And I'd love to talk about how we're now working across NHS trust borders and boundaries on how if you're a doctor at one NHS hospital, you can now pick up shift at your neighboring hospital without having to jump through lots and lots of hoops. So it's putting the, the end yeah, back so into we're NHS. We're gonna get, yeah. Yeah, we're gonna get into that because I knew I remember that from our last chat where like you it, it, up until it sounds like you've broken down this barrier, but I'm sure not well, very few people listening, maybe they didn't know this, but um it was very, very hard. Let's say if you lived in Buckinghamshire, but you wanted to work in Oxfordshire, which are next to each other. And, you know, I used to live on the border of those two counties and you could cross between them in a few minutes. And it was like, you know, from Stoke Mandeville to the John Radcliffe was maybe 45 minutes in a car. You wouldn't have been able to build, you wouldn't have, you would not have been able to do shifts in both of those as a doctor. Right. Or you couldn't have done it very easily. It was very difficult, if not impossible. Very difficult um, and done in not the right way. It's interesting you mentioned those two trusts. But um, yes, no, I'm very happy. I, I can talk about it now if, if that works. Well, no, my, our producer is, is, is yelling in my ear that we have to go for a two-minute commercial break and then we will be back because let's dig into this and then, Ahmed, you can tell us what on earth is happening with the NHS staffing crisis. <laughs> what on earth is going on? So we'll be right back after these commercial messages. Sure. Thanks. UK Health Radio The station that makes you feel good Nagging pain We at AlgaCells know that a small amount of the patient's own bone marrow and blood cells can treat many painful conditions with regenerative orthopaedic therapy This is an attractive treatment option for painful joints, back pain, sports injuries and many other conditions it may avoid the need for surgery altogether. Algacells, part of a network of 50 Regenex clinics worldwide where over 60,000 patients have been treated and helped. Algacells, life is more beautiful with less pain. A cancer diagnosis can be scary and stressful for everyone involved. Hello Love is a contemporary living space and well-being center in central London where anyone can come and learn about illness prevention and non-toxic practice. Inside, you will find a vegan restaurant 
juice bar and holistic dojo that encourage lifestyle changes to help heal mind, body and spirit connection. Cancer patients are offered free sessions to find out more. Please visit us at hellolove.org. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. Okay, hi everybody. Welcome back to this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost, and Ahmed Sharabani. This week's Health Tech Hour is brought to you by PocDoc. Um, so, Ahmed, before we break, before we start, we were going to talk about, or fundamentally, I think let's talk about the staffing crisis and how we got to this point. And I and I guess, well, let's just start there. Give give me your view on what is going on, and and then also obviously how local Nest is helping. But but but. Set the scene a little bit because the headlines don't look good. And I think people's experience on the ground isn't that great either, you know, at the moment. So what 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 do you think? What are your thoughts? No, thanks, Steve. Um, so it, firstly, it, it's multifaceted, as, as we're all aware. And, and it's useful to know that the or to kind of comprehend that the waiting list issues across the country are directly linked to staffing. The, the two go hand in hand. You it's the increased backlog of cases is much more limited by shortage of staff than it is by shortage of hardware, let, let's say, in terms of space to, to treat okay. patients, et cetera. So if we focus very much on, on staffing, um, it, it's very much multifactorial. And it's something that is likely to have been the case for decades rather than simply years. And as we mentioned earlier, it's been getting worse and worse and worse with some false periods of increased hope where the, the delta shrunk i.e during the height of the pandemic um and now we are at a an all-time low in terms of we have the biggest gap delta in terms of supply and demand and it, it's how we tackle it is is the key problem here and the the why is, is a very difficult question to answer um I it, personally, I believe it comes down to a number of, of, of areas. One is simply that we are not creating enough doctors if we just focus on doctors to, to cater for the increasingly aging population with, with increased number of comorbidities and mm-hmm. health demand per patient is, is going up um, over time. Um, mm-hmm. on, on top of the, the pure shortage of, of doctors that are being created by UK med schools, um, I, I think we have to have a lesser reliance on international recruitment. Um, this is a global issue and, you know, the population in a foreign country are just as important to the human race as the population here. So I think it's it's prudent that we don't think of just taking resource from other countries and bring them here as if we're solving a problem. Um, we are act- we're realistically actively damaging somebody else's population. So the the way we look at things or I look at things is yes we need to have a health system where we have enough doctors who are going through university who are being trained as, as you get doctors who can then enter the system but that's not an overnight fix it will take years you know probably closer to a decade to really feel the impact of increased numbers um, and it's not easy to create a medical school but on on top of that the key area that we should look at is how can we work better together using the resources that we have. Um, And I think one mistake that people tend to think is that actually 
you know, if we simply roster our doctors better, i.e. digitize some yeah. elements, it's it's actually a, a fairly short-sighted view because people are making the assumption that doctors aren't working hard enough. Whereas, you know, first-hand experience, and I think if you speak to any doctor in the country, they will explain to you how they're going above and beyond week in, week out. Um, so actually, in some yeah. ways, by making things more rigid, you might exacerbate the problem because you will you'll then realize the a worse scale of the problem. So one thing that we are looking at is some NHS hospitals are better staffed in others. Certainly, you might have a better staffed cardiology department in, in one hospital uh, and then a relatively poorly staffed gastroenterology department at that same hospital compared to the neighboring hospital. And I, I won't name any because I don't want people to think I have any underlying knowledge no. of them, but hospital A and hospital B. Yeah. Um, yeah. And at the moment, hospital A and hospital B uh, would typically compete with one another. As, as you alluded to before the break, there is no way for a hospital A doctor to work a shift at hospital B um, without having to jump through lots and lots of hoops and lots and lots of hurdles. Um, totally it, bonkers. It's, it's it's disappointing that that's where we are, and I it's uh, we've mentioned a few times. How N, did we, NHS. How did, how did we get to that point? Is it just that's how the system grew up? Uh, it's how this. It, like I mean, the NHS that, is. It's it's a tricky one because we we have NHS trust, and then now we had CCGs, and now ICS is forming. You have this collaboration, then dissolving of that collaboration on and off, and it goes in cycles. And yeah. I think that's fundamentally left to trusts looking, NHS trusts looking after themselves, and that's how they get paid. The, the budget goes to the trust. So right. a trust has buying power. Um, and that that's changing slightly with the formation of ICSs, these integrated care support systems. Um, but what we are saying is, if we just use that analogy, and I promise it'll be a quick one, hospital A, good cardiology department staffing-wise, poor gastroenterology. Hospital B, poor cardiology department staffing-wise, very, very rich gastroenterology staffing. We are saying, let's connect the two. We'll build a digital bridge between them. So if on a, any given Sunday, hospital B needs a cardiologist, hospital A cardiologist can work seamlessly. And... Whilst yeah. that won't solve the staffing crisis, we have a data point of roughly one and a half million data points of doctor movement, and you do improve things by about 10%, i.e. 10% of shifts that previously were gone unfilled, you help with that. Um, and the, the well, beauty and of that, that is... I think, like, I think it's like any... Sorry, I was going to say like any... Yeah you're dealing with patients and human beings, right? So any, any, any percent, particularly the numbers that you talk about in a, in a, in a hospital, I mean, it's such large numbers that 1%, 2%, 10% is a huge number of people that, that have been treated or discharged or moved from emergency into intermediary or intermediary into discharge, whatever it's, it, it, it could have a huge impact. So 10%, although might, people might not get whoop-de-doo about it, but that could actually make a massive impact. Well, no, huge. And, and 10% is, is material. Um, so I, I can only go off data that is available to us. So uh, we're working with just over 50-ish NHS trusts in the country. Um, and across all of those 50, on average, 80 to 85% of all of their gaps are filled by NHS workers. Now, if they all work together, you increase that 10% on top of that, all of a sudden, 
you're filling closer to 95% of all shifts, which is a huge thing because we're almost in this you know, ideal world where all vacancies are filled without any external factors, without needing to nationally recruit, um, without stealing somebody from here only to gain here. It's, it's sharing at its purest. Um, and considering yeah. the NHS is a national body, it's, it's sad that it's taken this long, but equally exciting that over the past year, we've seen a paradigm yeah. shift where it's, it's phenomenal. You're, you're getting clusters of NHS trusts all across the country who are purchasing tech together, who want to work together. I mean, our latest, one of our latest groups of trusts who are going live are what we call the NCL group, and that's the North Central London group. So it's it's amazing to see the likes of UCLH, Moorfields, Great Ormond Street, the Royal Free, North Mid, the Whittington, now all looking to work together. And that is that is a significant part of London. So it'll be the largest group of NHS hospitals in the capital to do something. But, you know, I don't want it to be London-centric. Right. This is happening all across the country. Yeah. And I think that this is what, this is what, from a common sense perspective, you know, person on the street perspective, probably people are like, wow, okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Why would we not do that? You know, and so I think that may be like, that's the efficiency that people keep talking about, I, I, I would guess, right? That's the sort of, those are those efficiency gains. I think the question is like, okay, well, how much does that get you? And, and also weirdly, is that kind of still masking some of these underlying problems like, not making enough doctors, not making enough nurses, you know, all these type of things. Does it sort of paper over the cracks for a bit and then we kick the can further down the road? Because like, as you say, creating more doctors and creating more nurses is a really long term thing and probably multifactorial, really quite hard to to solve, especially going into, you know, across the living crisis and all this type of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, no, see, I mean, look, I, I guess I'm fortunate enough that I don't have a five-year term that I have to make change happen in. Um, yeah. I, you know, that this could be something that we work on for decades um, or longer, who knows? So the way I look at things is what can you do today, what can you do tomorrow, and what can you do in the future? And yes, the longer term, we do need more med schools. We do need more nursing colleges. We do need all of these things, but we cannot do that today. So today, is there something at our disposal? The answer is yes. Does it harm anybody by what we are doing? No, quite the contrary. Does it cost money? No, it's saving close to a billion pounds over a few years period. So um, ethically, I feel this is the right thing. And, you know, it's what helps me sleep at night that actually we are helping. And who knows, one day we might be in a world where any doctor, any nurse, any pharmacist, physio in the country, if they're traveling to see their parents or family friends in a different part of the country, and for whatever reason they want to pick up a shift or that hospital they're nearby is has a major incident and they need doctors or nurses they can help um and i i I cannot see a single downside to to this because it's voluntary you're not forcing anyone to do anything and why and and are there people genuinely obviously without naming names you know we're not gonna out anyone on the show but uh, is there anyone genuinely on the counter argument of that debate you know like as in no 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 we shouldn't do this yeah, no, I mean, I, of course, there, with with every industry on this planet, there are incumbent businesses who are used to things working the way things were working for a long time before technology that could support this comes into play. Unfortunately, you know, lobbying 
isn't one of my fortes. I like to play in a transparent way. So I, I can't talk too much about this, but should this happen, a lot of archaic ways of doing things would stop. Um, but right. the benefits might be would be for the population. Because, yeah. Yeah. And like, it's one of those things where I bet if you are, honestly, I, I bet if you ask people from where, where I grew up, which was on the Buckinghamshire, Oxfordshire border, and you were like, just pick a sample of a thousand people, and you said, on a, on a, I don't know, scale of one to 10, how difficult do you believe it would be for someone that's a doctor in John Radcliffe to pick up a shift in the thing? They wouldn't even enter their mind that it would be difficult. It's that logical a thing to do. It wouldn't even enter the general public's brain that a doctor who qualified under the NHS, who's worked probably across a ton of hospitals in their career, wouldn't be able to pick up a shift in another hospital. It's like bonkers. It's like, it's, it's, that's kind of, that's a bit like saying when you go from, you need to retake your driving test. If you drive through, if you, you know, if you go, if you go from Oxford to Newcastle, you've got to take a driving test four times as you drive across four different counties. Yeah, no, it is as simple as that. Um... Whereas, you know, we talk about digital passports, we talk about, you know, movement of workers, but you, you cannot do it without technology. But before the technology, you need to get the NHS trust leaders and you know, central government leaders to, to back this way of working. And thankfully, they have. And I, I have to be very clear, over the past two years, we've seen a paradigm shift in this. The pandemic probably did act as a catalyst. Um yeah. or team working, intra and inter NHS trust types of working. Um, but we're seeing this massive shift where NHS trusts aren't looking at, okay, what's best for me? Um, but they're now looking, you know, at technology and other things. It's not just tech with their neighboring trust leaders and saying, okay, what can we do together? Not just to help today, but to help by, you know, 2030, 2040. How do we be smart in what we do for the long term? And other than the pandemic, what has changed that has caused that mindset shift? Because that is a big mindset shift to suddenly starting to be, however much the NHS loves a 10-year forward plan and 12-year plan and a you know five-year, you know, all of that good stuff. What you're talking about there is like almost like a size, it's a seismic paradigm shift in, in how to think about healthcare provision you know, 20 years ahead, 30 years ahead, 40 years ahead. So like, what, was it just the pandemic or did, did something else happen too? Or like, yeah. yeah. Look, I, I'm not a fan of talking about locum zest at, at every opportunity, but I like to think we had some role to play in this. So you can talk about locum's nest. It's okay. But, uh, the, the summary here. So we, we launched the NHS's first medics collaborative staff bank, which is across two trusts in Surrey, um, where they were the first two in the country where doctors had free movement between them. And that's now grown massively. Uh, that's then it's, kind of piqued the interest of some key stakeholders in NHS England and Improvement, which are the kind of central bodies. And I suspect and hope, um, because of the types of people that this kind of interested, that that's led to some policy decision-making. And now we have the formation of ICSs, um, where it's semi-mandated that they need to provide evidence by X date that they are doing something like this in order to get this payment so they can then yeah. dissipate to their organization. So it, it, it all starts with small ideas 
Yeah. And then, you know, the butterfly effect all the way to but people. It, can... But it being the NHS, does it need to be at some point in order for it to kind of get over the tipping point? It needs to be enshrined in policy because it's the NHS. Is that how it sort of works? Or like, you know, do you see what I mean? Because yeah. At some point it needs to it needs to kind of make it up through that atmosphere to the, you know, the upper echelons. And then there needs to be a policy kind of sent down. It, it certainly helps. It, it, it's not a magic bullet. Um, that in conjunction with the fact that you're getting a lot more doctors in management positions now, and not just doctors, but clinicians really as well, um, you are starting to see the people on the ground to really start to help support decision-making across NHS Trust board level or board meetings, which is really, really very helpful. Um, the number of doctor CEOs, nurse CEOs are all growing, going up over the past few years certainly right. interesting well that might have some i would suspect that has something to do with it i think that's probably another one of those things that the general public doesn't realize about about another change that's taken place that actual clinicians are moving across in, and up into the management of nhs entities which is definitely going to make a difference yes no absolutely right we're going to do another two minute break and then we're going to come back and there's a few things I want to kind of cover off, um, particularly around the old junior doctor crisis. And then, you know, a few things here or there just to pick up on, 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 on some other things. But we'll be back um, in two minutes with sure. Ahmed Cherubani from Local Nest. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. Nagging pain. We at AlgaCells know that a small amount of the patient's own bone marrow and blood cells can treat many painful conditions with regenerative orthopaedic therapy. This is an attractive treatment option for painful joints, back pain, sports injuries and many other conditions. It may avoid the need for surgery altogether. AlgaCells, part of a network of 50 Regenex clinics worldwide where over 60,000 patients have been treated and helped. AlgaCells. Life is more beautiful with less pain. A cancer diagnosis can be scary and stressful for everyone involved. Hello Love is a contemporary living space and well-being center in central London where anyone can come and learn about illness prevention and non-toxic practice. Inside, you will find a vegan restaurant, juice bar, and holistic dojo that encourage lifestyle changes to help heal mind, body, and spirit connection. Cancer patients are offered free sessions. To find out more, please visit us at hellolove.org. The station that makes you feel good. Hello and welcome back to the last part of this week's Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio with me, Steve Roost um, and Ahmed Cherubani of Locum's Nest. Um, this week's Health Tech Hour is brought to you in partnership with PopDoc, revolutionising the blood testing space. So, um, Ahmed, before we um, before we before we shut, we were we were talking all about the NHS staffing crisis. So, if Liz, uh, you know, and I think that you were being very humble. It's one of the reasons I like talking to you because you're an extremely successful person that's done a huge amount of good in the world, but you're still extremely humble, which is fantastic, um, and not wishing to put locum's nest sort of front and center when you've obviously had such a huge impact in this area. But if if Liz or the, any of the leaders of the 
NHS, I mean, Liz Trust. I, I, I don't know her. I don't know why I call her Liz. Um, but if she's listening or if anyone is listening, what, what would you want them to do now to make to I know it's multifaceted, right? But but like, what are the one, two and three things that you think should be done in the shortest period of time to try and exacerbate these things? To use your model of what can I do today? What can I do tomorrow? And then there's the longer term. Yeah. Um, what can you do today is is listen. L- listen to the clinicians, listen to their pain points. I I was out of clinical practice for just over four years. And when I came back, you know, my word that things change. Um, so the knowledge that people hold on to from their time a few years ago or the connections a few years old is very different to today. So if I were Liz, um, <laughs> I, I would spend my first few days, weeks listening to clinicians, not just the leaders, but the people on the ground too, to understand what they feel is, is going on. Um, there will be a lot to chew on. Um, can't advise on all of them, but if I wanted quick wins as the prime minister uh, and immediate, you know, felt benefits by the UK population, general public, I would mandate that if you're a doctor anywhere in the country or a nurse or a pharmacist or a physio, anybody who works for the NHS in any capacity, I want to make it my objective to make it as easy as possible for you to cross cover shifts across NHS trust boundaries the technology is there to do it. It's not just us, although we are the best. Of course, I'll say that. But there's plenty of others out there that would do it. But you will immediately, even before this winter, and winter is going to be difficult this winter, see an impact, not just in financial savings, but in clinical outcomes. And, and this is a zero-risk approach uh, until somebody tells me otherwise. But I've been doing this for six years now, and nobody's told me a reason why this is a bad idea. No, I mean... It- Again, it's like, I, look, I think that's very clear. And I think that without wishing to turn this into a, you know, some sort of, I don't know, tittle-tattle show, I think that the, this is my opinion, based just opinion of one, is like the people that are probably against what you're talking about, either are just so into their own process that they've been doing for so long that they just, change is difficult, you know, more from a systemic concept that all change is difficult and any deviation from what they've been doing or what's been happening for 10 years or 20 years is is a deviation from the norm and therefore it has more friction than not doing anything or at least more friction to begin with and then it'll ease up or there's some kind of vested interest right you know there's 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 probably a whole bunch of other companies out there you know temporary staffing companies companies geared around you know, hiring foreign workers to come into the UK to fill positions. There's probably a huge amount of that type of stuff that gets threatened by this, who may or may not have their little paws and claws into different bits and bobs. Again, I won't ask you to comment on that because I know that you won't, but but that would just be my take as, as, as you know, data point one. Uh, yeah, Steve, I, I plead oh, the fifth, but I, I, like I plead no, the fifth on this, but um, <laughs> no, I, I'm not saying anything because I, I think most listeners will probably know you're absolutely right. And it's not just in the health industry. It happens everywhere. And right. uh, unfortunately, no. when companies scale and yeah. they have the fingers in a lot of areas, then it's tricky to break that because the, the people in high places typically will know them. So it really takes very, very powerful yeah. data and arguments which we are generating um a billion pounds is difficult to to dispute um 
So yeah, it's a matter, matter of time. And the, 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 ama the, ama and the, and the amazing thing about that number is that that's NHS workers into NHS positions. It's, 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 it's within the system. Like it's, it's not like sourcing other people at a cheaper price and bringing them in and therefore you're saving because you're cleverly hiring in people at a lower band and blah, blah, blah. It's literally more efficiently using the resources that exist in the amazing NHS that we have in a way that then still saves money. And also then at the end of the day, actually helps patients, right? Because these shifts being filled, that's patients that are having a better experience or an experience or being treated or however you want to. I think that that's what that's what really gets me about some of these. I think people get. I, I think now there's a bit of saturation about this 130,000 or 120,000 or 140,000 vacancies or whatever it is. It's sort of like a bit of blindness as to actually what the impact is until there's another story about ambulances queuing at A and E and people being treated in the in the corridors and things like that. It's sort of like it, there's no. I don't know. There's not much of a. It's hard. It's hard to see the human impact until it gets yeah. to the point where there's images of ambulances. But but there's such a huge human impact before that point, right? Like the people that are discharged twelve hours late or twenty four hours late, or the people that can't get to, to go, that they have their operations cancelled, or all these different things. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think see one thing that we haven't mentioned is you know this whole area of discussion isn't forcing anyone to do anything they don't want to. We are not saying, oh, we're going to create a much right. more rigid roster where you will then have to work twice as much across NHS Trust Boundary. What we're saying is we're giving you the choice. And when people have the choice in, in every walk of life, they will feel empowered. They will likely do a better job. They will feel more, they will be more productive and they'll want to learn. Um, so that that's kind of a key area, the kind of wellness and well-being side of things that people ignore. Because as you say, it's easy to focus on the numbers. Um, but actually, every doctor that you support, every nurse that you support will end up, you know, impacting 30, 40, 50 patients a day who will then impact, you know, 100, yeah. 200 of their family members every day. So it, it cascades in such a beautiful way. But it starts so yeah. simple. Absolutely. And, you know, people are scratching their heads about how do we get more doctors and things like that. And it's like, well, hold up a second. Why don't we just why don't we just use the doctors that we have who already want to work, you know, who are actually up for more shifts or different shifts or let, let's just try and put them into places where they can work. Why don't we like do that? You know, yeah. I think that makes total Steve, sense. Just, let's, just let's switch slightly yeah. just to begin with. Sure. No, just on that. No, I was I wasn't sure which go on. which way we we're going to go. But um, there are, in a very very blunt way, there are ten thousand doctors in the country right now who want to work more who cannot, who did help during the pandemic. And I think you know, if I was coming into a position where I could help, I would speak to the likes of Health Education England and really work with them to say why aren't we supporting these doctors? And I don't know if we have time to discuss this at length, but I'll be guided by you. There's there's a lot to be said here. Go. Yeah, no, so yeah, go um, for it. I think this is another one of those things that we, we talked in the pre-show about this. And this is another thing I think that deserves more attention. So so go for it. I think it's really interesting. Yeah, no, again, so this has very little to do with locums nest, and this is more of an anecdotal story. So pandemic hits March 2021 or I, I get my ears wrong. Whenever the pandemic hit, um, yeah. the the UK, uh, so the General Medical Council and various other bodies went to all doctors who had their license to practice frozen for a while or had just gone to retirement and said, please, can you help us by coming back and, and helping on the wards? And it was amazing. 
like nearly 10,000 doctors said, yes, we'll help. Um, but even then, there was very, very little guidance. It was each to their own. So I was one of them. I, I ended up spending a lot of time with old friends who would defrost my medical knowledge and I would dive into the deep end with trying to learn what the latest clinical guidelines were. I did a bit of shadowing and then I went, I ended up on the COVID wards and it was amazing. On the COVID wards, you would be working with a consultant breast surgeon, a dermatologist, a HIV specialist and a respiratory doctor. And it was a real wartime effort where there was a big familial feeling the the firm feeling of being a doctor came back into to play and you know we had a great time you know as, as doctors because we felt so supported that's something that's been lacking in in recent years and it felt like we were as clinicians more policed rather than empowered um but that aside you know covid was very very difficult as a junior doctor you'd see way more deaths in a day than you'd see in a year and it was it was very very tough emotionally and personally but you, you dealt with it because you had that supportive family around you. Now, um, as the pandemic subsides, and I, I hope this is kind of the end or the beginning of the end, I don't know how to phrase it, um, these 10,000 doctors are, to put it bluntly, left in the dark. So if you want to stay practicing, you have to, as per Health Education England guidelines, operate three and a half days a week, or practice three and a half days a week. That is the definition of less than full time. And we live in a very different world now than we did 20 years ago. And a lot of people would see that as a full-time job, three and a half, four days a week, you know. Um, so, well, yeah, the, but by full-time, you mean like that's as much as they are able to work, right? That, that, that you know, they have other, they have other exactly. obligations. They have children to look after. They're semi-retired, whatever it is. But they want to work to the fullest capacity of their ability to work. Which may not be a minimum of three and a half days a week, right? It could be one day, it could be two days a week. And that's fine because we would have gone out to, you know, temporary workers otherwise. So there's a real, real opportunity across the NHS to say, okay, how do we support these 10,000 doctors to stay in the system, to help out when they can, because they're NHS doctors, they're NHS trained, they know the system, but we're just not helping them. And we can't hold them to a three and a half day minimum because they, they left practice for whatever reason, they could be retired, as you said, semi-retired, they could be working in the city and there's another profession that's equally helpful to the health service or in, in public health. Um, so there's a real opportunity here. We are trying to do it by working with individual NHS trusts with their CEOs and medical directors and trying to support this contingent workforce to work less than full-time, to commit X number of hours a year, work flexibly in an empowered way, but there needs to be a much bigger play. It can't be down to people like us to to fix this, um, there needs to be mandate from the top. But you know, hopefully with change now, it might happen. Yeah, I mean, look, if it's not, I mean, I hate to sound sort of, you know, fatalistic, if it's not going to change now, then, then you know, when? I mean, <laughs> I mean, how, how, how more resource constrained do things need to get? Like how, at what point do you, do you make that kind of, make that change? So yeah, I think that that's very, very valid. So we've got a few minutes left on the show. I want to touch on obviously as a digital entrepreneur and, and having um, digitized uh, one element of you know the health service around sort of um, staffing. Well, what's your view around you know the extent that that digitization of clinical pathways, healthcare? How far can it go? Could it go? I mean, what obviously it's not the solution to everything, but there are certain areas where some elements, your great example, can make a massive difference. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think if we focus on clinical pathways mostly, and I, I've I've got some understanding of public health prevention and epidemiology and, and, and such from various degrees that I've done. But if we focus on prevention as being the key area, primary and secondary, um, that is where I feel digital health can be the most impactful. I think once you are sick, as anybody, you will likely do best in a center of health where you have people there who can touch, feel, do what they need to do there and then do whatever tests they can. But it's before that, it's how can we be clever with digital health, digital therapeutics to prevent you getting to that point. Um, and, you know, whether it's fingerprint blood tests like TokTok or, you know, lipid profiles, you can address things well in the future by easy to do things at home, uh, which will trigger treatment pathways, which could also be done remotely, um, where you can make a real impact before we get to the point where somebody needs to go to hospital. Um, if I had to put all my eggs in one basket, I would look at digital therapeutics, digital health, treat people before they get sick. So focus on prevention. Yeah, I think that makes I think that makes sense. I think once you're in hospital, it's a different kettle of fish, and, and then it's more around improving the, mach the, 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 the machinery or, or, you know, the experience or the back end or the middle office, which is sort of where you guys came in to make the system more efficient. But the actual treatment of the patient is always going to involve hands-on in some way, shape or form. Um, I think that makes sense. But yeah, obviously from Pocket's perspective, prevention and providing those, uh, you know, ability to take a blood test, lipid profiles, um, getting people more tested, getting people um, put onto statins, obviously lipid lowering therapies, all those type of things can make a huge difference. Um, and big cardiovascular disease being the single biggest killer in the UK still. So, um, yeah, good to get your thoughts on that. So, Ahmed, that's the end of the show. Um, it genuinely was a real pleasure getting you on um, and, and getting you talking about these issues. Um, you know, uh, how do people find out more about Locum's Nest if they want to know where do they go? Uh, yeah, we, we've, we've got a very fun website, Locum's Nest at UK. Um, my phone number seems to be all over the internet. So I'm sure if you want to reach me in person. Okay, don't give that. Don't give that out. Don't give that out. No, it's amazing how things <laughs> just propagate. So I get calls from all sorts of people. No, I'm very happy to talk if people are interested and want to help. But um, no, our, our website is, is probably best in various social media channels. My email address is, is fairly straightforward. It's Ahmed at Lekinsistic.co.uk. But um, yeah, I'm happy to be approached in any way, shape or form, as long as it's not rocking up at my flat. Okay, great. Well, don't give the address out. Ahmed, thank you very much for coming on the show. Ahmed um, Sharabani, CEO of Locum's Nest. Really a pleasure to get you on the Health Deck Hour. Thanks a lot for coming and thank you uh, to everyone for listening. It's been a pleasure, Steve. Thanks a lot. I'll be honest. I'm all right with me. Sunday mornings in my own bed sheet.